Welcome to the 7th Art Podcast. My name is Christopher Heron and I'm the host of the 7th Art. It's a podcast about cinema, also a video magazine about cinema. I'm joined by one of our producers, Pavan Mundi. Hello. How are you doing today? Uh, I'm doing pretty good, as good as I was uh, in the last intro we recorded. Alright, so we are, uh, we're talking today, among other things, about our Guy Madden interview, which was the very first published interview we did. What do you remember about that fateful day? Uh, well, let's see, we we tried to book Guy Madden before the 7th Art uh, existed in any form. It was just a concept at that point. I'm not even sure it had a title, I don't think. Basically, we were wondering how do we get access to Madden, so we... Uh, well, maybe first off, you can talk about why you wanted Madden to be the first director that we featured, because it's not like he's based in Toronto anyway, so it wasn't accessibility. I think Guy Madden is, apart from being one of the few really great Canadian filmmakers, has a kind of fearless experimentalism, uh, open to new ideas. Everyone I've talked to about him talks about how supportive he was. He seemed like a good candidate to be willing to do this with, as you say, no uh, proven product out there yet. Right, so... Uh, and guess... and also, I mean, you emailed him signing an email you with know, I, <laughs> I was going to get to that. I was going to say we should talk about maybe how we booked Guy Madden because we didn't have uh, a track record or anything to point to, which is always uh, makes things difficult uh, trying to vie for somebody's time, especially when they're out of town. So uh, uh, we were lucky enough to kind of get access to uh, him directly through email. We just kind of point blank asked him, I guess, this would have been in probably September of 2011. He kind of agreed to do it, but he wasn't had no plans to be in Toronto, and then we kind of heard he was going to be in Toronto as part of TIFF's Top 10 uh, Canadian Films of the Year screening uh, for Keyhole in November of 2011. We were checking in with him constantly, and then we kind of got kind of a lukewarm response when it was I don't think it official. was lukewarm. I think he was just busy uh, and and you were concerned so you wanted to make a I statement <laughs> a real statement email <laughs> keep i think the goal was to be memorable right i think the goal was to be memorable and one thing we had noted was that uh you may not think it to look at him or maybe you would if you watch a lot of his interviews but uh his email demeanor is just ridiculously warm and littered with uh x's and o's and warm wishes and love and it's, it's just a great uh, email presence i'm pulling up the email that well, we sent him where we, we kind of wanted to send a statement email so i'm just going to read from the email i don't have a date on this but uh, it's quote hey guy thanks for getting back to me so quickly hopefully we can hook up soon love pavin it was memorable he responded he responded uh almost immediately and that was it we locked him in and roped him in and he gave us a 90 minute interview he just kind of showed up on i think he took a street card at the interview he was he had to go to the big gala function the opening of the of tiff's uh, top 10 canadian films of the year right after the interview but he still got there early enough to allow us to do 90 minutes and he was uh kind of deathly ill he had a, a cold it was uh, late fall and he uh he didn't mention that I don't think... Oh, no, he does at the start. But um, our whole goal with this was to to kind of get drunk with the filmmakers, so that was uh, one of the first hurdles that concept took. Right, and that's happened repeatedly since then. I think 
yeah. not being sick, but just not doing it. Yeah, not interested in drink. People not interested in drinking on camera. And uh, we got back in touch with Guy recently, where he kind of gave us a testimonial where I think he compared you to a CSIS interrogator. Yeah, CSIS being Canada's own CIA. Right, and your kind of ability to get him to open up because he uh, is very candid uh, in this interview. I guess I think he is not a fan of 21 grams. So the one he uh, kind of rips. Yeah, but he also mentions how he he doesn't want to do that in his life to say negative things about and he does. living filmmakers. We were talking about some of the reviews that that make it into his book, um, put out by Coach House that collects his uh, journals, his uh, published writing. Right, and uh, I think that. Uh is a good primer uh, to the interview. Hope you guys enjoy it. Sip away at this. <laughs> well, if you're if you're under the weather, don't don't feel compelled. But... I'll nurse it and myself. <laughs> Thanks. We'll nurse each other. <laughs> <clears throat> okay. So, um, in general, what I wanted to talk about the general thrust of the the conversation is just your style in general. And, sure. Uh, because I don't want to go too in depth on the specific films for people who maybe haven't seen them, but I also wanted to uh, not overlap with like the really good DVD commentaries you've provided or like. The yeah. specific film, uh, like the essays and the the three collections I have, are okay. all very, very well uh, written as far as analysis. Yeah. So I was hoping well, that good, maybe thanks. we could <laughs> speak for more generally. Yeah, I have no recollection of the uh, essays or of the director's commentary. Well, so as you said, you, you I may repeat myself quite yeah, a bit. Yeah, yeah. Try um, not to, but I might. I, I I noticed that the New York Times when they were covering uh, Keyhole. They had an interview with you uh, where you were talking about like being pigeonholed as kind of uh, unclassifiable. And yeah. How you thought that that was a good thing, but meanwhile you found out from an industrial <laughs> end that that's not not a good thing. I, I was wondering if you could like, expand on, on why uh, people tend to have that perception from your, your point of view. Um, with regard yeah. to style, I guess. Yeah, I, I guess when people see that um, my movies are thrown together with such primitive glee, or maybe it's uh, primitive lugubriousness, yeah. I don't know, whatever it is. There's something primitive about it. I think, well, I'm the same way. When I watch a movie, I, you try to f fit it into a category and, yeah. then, and then go from there. You maybe correct the category uh, as you go, but uh, your first impulse is to categorize. And maybe when you see things put together, without any regard for continuity, uh, put together with a really aggressive disregard for the various acting styles matching up, maybe. Yeah. I think a lot of people want to um, jam, jam me into the camp category, maybe. Yeah. And then, um, but then, I don't know. I, I, I'm, I don't even know what camp is. Well, I'm not saying I'm not camp, but I, I just don't even exactly know how to define it myself. 
I kind of got comfortable with the idea that I'm melodramatic because I figured out yeah. a working definition of melodrama sure. and it seems to apply to almost everything though. Yeah. So I'm that, but that's like saying I make films yeah. almost and then like everything except and maybe even including surveillance camera films are melodrama. Oh so, yeah. Like the, the more you watch a surveillance camera, the more you want some melodrama to happen. <laughs> well, also the <coughs> gestures are heightened, right? It's like yeah. you're seeing people uh, as they are, like in that heightened sense of uh, Oh, like a, during a robbery? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or something. Yeah, well, that's one of the definitions uh, I use for melodrama is just where you're un the characters are uninhibited yeah. to fit a very long story into 90 minutes. Yeah. Everything has to be uninhibited. Everything has to be plain to the eye. And of course, we're uninhibited when we're uh, dreaming or insane or sleepless or in a state of, I, I guess I've never included like an actual, the committing of a crime. Yeah. But I guess yeah. you get pretty uninhibited there. You're doing things you shouldn't ought to be doing. Yeah. You're doing them. And it's interesting that you mentioned camp because it's like, it, it, it's also something that has a debatable definition. But yeah. It also seems to me like, a lot of films that qualify for the camp designation are, are kind of films that have like uh, a story that kind of fades to the background to allow for a very charismatic lead <laughs> to kind yeah. of just like chew through the scenery yeah and, and that kind of like I don't know if I've ever really had that I no but like I think yeah. that like when you work with very charismatic leads and I think you always have them, even if some are less less stars than, yeah. than others then it, it kind of allows them to emote uh, yeah. in a way that is, is visible and also melodramatic, right? Um, a lot of times I just erred on the side of melodrama because I wasn't sure, being an inexperienced storyteller, still 25 years after picking up a camera, I, um, uh, sometimes I just err on the side of overtelling the story uh, and then to the point where the story, but paradoxically where the story disappears yeah. <laughs> well, I don't know, both over, over signifying things uh, facially or bodily and then, uh, but I'm also trying to tell too many stories to the point where they kind of all cancel each other out and I, I end up that. with them. Well, I don't know, just, I'm, I'm just trying to figure out what people make of my, my movies. I know one of, the, one of the feelings about camp that most people probably have is that you laugh more at it than with it. Yes. But um, but I've always I've been such a laughter slut that I've always been happy to take um, either kind of laughter. Um, at first, um, people were well aware I was in the audience because I'd introduce a movie yeah. at a film festival, and and they'd be scared to laugh at the movie out of you know politeness to me, yeah. uh, or just uncertainty. You kind of have to feel certain to laugh unless yeah. it's a nervous laugh or something, which those are my favorite kind. So um, it's. It's strange. The first few movies I made, uh, no one was quite certain if I wanted people to laugh or not. And, yeah. uh, and so, um, but you'd think after I'd made 10 features that going back and showing an old movie, say, that people would know better now. But I, I recently revived my first feature, Tales from the Gimli Hospital, with a new score. I played it at the Lincoln Center in New York, and it was, it was, just, it was just right back to 1988 again. It was unbelievable. They were like, never more than two people laugh. It's not that funny a movie, I admit it. And my comedic timing in it is terrible. But, um, the, I don't know, this has just never been two people laughing at the same place in, yeah. that, in that movie. But there's plenty of, uh, 
sort of a general uh, itchy condescension sort of rankling through the room sometimes too. Luckily with the live music elements, it sort of um, classes up the joint mm -hmm. quite a bit, even when one of my movies is uh, projected across all these melodies. So um, yeah. it, it gave the feeling of a concert, that a really beautiful concert that just happened to have one of my movies projected in behind it. Now, the, the laughter, could it also, like, I, th I think what you're saying about camp is true in the sense that it's always like a reclaimed, like, reading of something, right? Like, or where you take the object and you reclaim it through an alternative reading, which mm -hmm. sometimes is laughing at it. Um, yeah. But it also, it's not so much judgmental even when it's, you're laughing at something for purposes that are unintended. It's almost yeah. like you're laughing with it. And I think that one thing I found interesting, you wrote an article on Bollywood where you talked about a kind of naivete in the viewing practices then where um, it, I guess it deals with realism, like things could be heightened and maybe less realistic, but audience was, would be willing to go with it. Um, yeah. They weren't so, uh, I guess, nailing it to the cross of realism, right? Yeah. I can't remember. I remember regretting writing that article. wish I hadn't. Because I was that? writing, I think, I, was it a review on... on it went into Deepa 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. I, yeah I, I'm not a film reviewer. And yeah. I shouldn't be writing about living filmmakers. Oh, uh, I think it was very because she's. You know, I hope so. Uh, but I, I remember realizing, what am I doing? I sort of got into this writing bit as a dabbling little hobby, and I was writing about my favorite films yeah. by dead filmmakers. Next thing I know, I was writing about someone who was like, <laughs> sort of moving around in the <laughs> same circles as me, and, yeah. and not what I wanted to be doing. So I did, never did that again. Um, I. The word realism is almost completely pointless to me in film. Uh, I have this thing, let's see if I can remember to cover both of these um, points. I like showing the grandmother and, um, uh, and I can both laugh at and be devastated by the same work of art, sometimes simultaneously. Um, bedtime stories, uh, when you're a child, you don't need to watch a movie. You get a bedtime story if you're lucky. Say your grandmother sits at the foot of the bed and she tells a story and she can even tell it. Um, I tell bedtime stories to my granddaughter now. I can even scare her and I have to, she asked me to change the story so that I don't scare her so much. So she is literally drawn into the story. I'll talk about myself as the grandfather now instead of a grandmother. I used to, I used to think of this in terms of myself being the child in bed. but. Um, just the other night I had to rewrite a bedtime story for my granddaughter because she was so sucked into the story. Um, I need more people like her in my theaters. Um, that she was getting scared and she just asked me to change uh, the story to make it less scary. So uh, you often I often heard, anyway, when I was starting out, that um, a complaint about a film, that it broke the dramatic illusion, that it took you out of the narrative or something. And I, it's like we're always capable of going into and back out of fluently. It should be like a completely um, traversable um, membrane, you know, between uh, the story and the storyteller. We're well aware that when we're in a theater, you know, yeah. as we cross and uncross our legs or are aware of our bladders filling up or whatever, but we're also sucked into yeah. a movie and, and you're constantly going in and out of your physical body and into the story. Uh, so I don't 
concern myself with that kind of realism that prevents me. I just say aggressively, show me the grandmother or I will show myself to my yeah. uh, granddaughter. And um, I, and so realism, it's, it's a story, you know, and there's other things that engage. It's not, people think they want realism. Apparently as early as um, the, like the first year of Edison filmmaking of the Black Maria, yeah. they, his films were being praised for their realism, you know, <laughs> things like that. And it's, it's like, and people have always thought they wanted realism, but they always respond most to just, I don't know a great story or a great spell. I'm, believe me, I, I like non-narrative film as much as narrative film, but it's just, it's not necessarily realism. Yeah. Realism is, there's this um, writer, Bruno Schultz, a Polish writer, yeah, yeah. who's worked during, between the wars. He's got this great anecdote. I can only paraphrase it, but it's in one of his stories where the narrator's father is this kind of maker of miracles and little magic tricks. And he's got, um, he can actually make, you can actually make the carvings on the back of the dinner chairs sort of wink and nod and grimace a little bit. And one of them actually even does so in, in, a, in a way that makes the chair back a likeness of Aunt Edna, yeah. the narrator's Aunt Edna. Yeah. And then finally, uh, the chair actually re begins to resemble Aunt Edna so much that it actually isn't a miracle after all. It actually is just Aunt Edna sitting there. And everyone's kind of disappointed that there was no trick after all. It's just Aunt Edna came over for dinner. Yeah. And uh, you can actually just take realism to the point where it's just literal. It's like Voorhees' life-size map of the world. It's not a map anymore. It's the world. Like, uh, so you've got a, you know, art to a certain degree is a reduction to it's prettiest or more telling or painful or whatever, mm -hmm. whatever you want to reduce it to. That's your, I don't know, you know, that's what being an artist is, I guess. I don't know. Um, I just wanted to mention that when I watch um, Douglas Sirk's melodramas, particularly his Technicolor ones, just the sight of the Technicolor delights me. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the sight of Rock Hudson delights me. I think he's great. Uh, I think he's a great mannered actor. Like, great. But there's something mannered about him. There's nothing realistic no. about him. And yet, uh, and I'm just delighted by the scores that producer Ross Hunter puts in and, um, and the naked melodrama of them. And yet I can still be devastated by the yeah. movies too. I've both laughed at and been wrung out by Written on the Wind just once. Uh, I've tried to duplicate the emotional experience, but you can't yeah. plan it. It has to sort of catch you off guard. But uh, I've always laugh at Robert Stack staggering about. I, I can't tell if he's a great mannered actor or actually a terrible one. I can't even <laughs> tell anymore, but he just belongs. He's perfect. Yeah. He's like a brush stroke that was just fluked off on a, on a masterful canvas that was just right, whether it was intentional or not. I, I, I don't know. It doesn't matter. So uh, I don't know. It's, those movies feel a little bit like kissing cousins to camp, but they're also put together with so much intelligence and so much control. And I'm not even sure if who to credit them to because um, Ross Hunter without Douglas Sirk and Sirk without Ross Hunter weren't very interesting yeah. to me. So it's, I don't even know who to give them credit to. It doesn't matter anyway. Well, yeah, because they accommodate so many different readings, right? Like all of the different yeah. components are working at, at different levels that, you know, it, it seems like when a story, especially like a Western, would have like a, a character that would be kind of funny. 
and yeah. like, it would be play off of like the grimness of, of the rest of it. Right. And and it would accommodate those where you would be switching back and forth between like if, if you just took that comedic relief, I guess, and, and isolated it, it would mm -hmm. be an entirely different movie. Yeah, or maybe unwatchable. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I well so these are the these are the kind of filmmakers that have always impressed me. People that can make you like literally laugh and cry at the same time. You know, that's a pretty impressive feat. So I uh, you know I would set my goals, something like that, and yeah. so. Uh, but I'm not the same talent that those that Ross Hunter and Douglas Sirk are. So I get somewhere else. But I aim for th effects like that, uh, and so I'm happy. I, I know I'm going to get um, lumped into the camp category. But it, uh, but I'm often pleased if someone recognizes some attempt at expressing some feelings I may have had along the way, because uh, I. I know these things can be, uh, but the, the real feelings get buried. I read an interview uh, in Cirque on Cirque uh, oh, where yeah. he was talking about a magnificent obsession is most yep. absurdly implausible. Uh, <laughs> yeah, where uh, Rock Hudson uh, studies to become a surgeon to save, <laughs> you know, to restore the vision of a woman he loved. Anyway, um, and the fact that he would love her is ridiculously implausible. So I don't know, the whole thing is wonderful. <laughs> But um, he talked about just seeing it as Euripidean tragedy and yeah. just to, and going all the way with it and just realizing you can't get shy of the melodrama. Mm -hmm. uh, you have to embrace it all the way and then it becomes totally entertaining to, uh, you know, you could probably show that movie to the ancient Greeks yeah. <laughs> and, and, uh, and they'd love it. Every now and then I see a melodrama that uh, gets ashamed of its melodrama. Uh, in Aratu's 21 Grams, say, uh, yeah. it's a crazy movie, uh, wonderful premise. I was pretty excited about it. It's Naomi Watts yep. and, you know, involving a heart transplant and then I think a woman falling in love with the, the, is it the, the recipient of her husband's heart or something. I don't know. It's something that should have been pretty nuts. Yeah. But I think it got, I think it shied off. I've only seen it once, and I'm breaking my own rule by talking about a living filmmaker. Yeah. But um, I remember my first impression was, but I'm, I'm feeling like going back, so maybe it'll get me. But I remember my first impression was that um, the director really felt, and he's probably right, that he had to package this ludicrous melodrama in um, contemporary mel uh, naturalistic performances. Yeah. And the result was that it hedged its melodramatic bets somehow and became kind of, it didn't, I don't think it, it harvested all that a good melodrama can, like really lurid tears and, uh, and really crazy allegorical fairy tale like lessons and things like that. I think, I think it really, um, I don't know, it's, it's like it's, it, uh, it was just restrained. It's like it didn't water itself enough or something like that. And the crop came up kind of, Disappointing. Well, it's funny you should mention Fairydale because I was thinking when you described that of AI and how like maligned it was for like basically flying off of the rails uh, mm -hmm. by the end of it, which was I thought the most amazing thing. Like, yeah, everyone feels uh, everyone either hates the last <laughs> yeah. half hour or uh, loves it. And the know, first, so. the first like third is incredibly melodramatic. Yeah. Um, but uh, if that's one side of the coin, the other one I wanted to talk about would maybe be the kind of unfortunate designation of the films being experimental because right. the form is so, uh, it draws attention to itself so much yeah. that that seems to many audiences uh, to be like an impossibility, again, to go back to realism, that if anything is 
formalistic enough that it draws attention to its form. Yeah. It, it's treated as if there is no narrative. But I mean, all of your films, the narrative to me is so strong. Oh, thanks. In all of them that I, I would feel uncomfortable calling it experimental necessarily, right? Yeah. Even the fact that they're features with melodramatic qualities, I mean, that's already deviating from a lot of what people would yeah. describe as experimental cinema. Yeah, you know, now you're beginning to sort of limb out why it's kind of hard to categorize yeah. the stuff. Um, I know I liked when Jim Hoberman in The Village Voice wrote a few years ago that I was either the most mainstream experimental filmmaker or the most experimental mainstream filmmaker. I was so thrilled that someone almost called me a mainstream filmmaker. Um, but um, yeah, if I were just maybe a little bit, if I just read that Robert McKee book on screenwriting, <laughs> which I started to flip through the other day after I'd made 10 features and went, oh my God, <laughs> that's what I've been doing wrong all this time. <laughs> you know, I, I maybe could have just made a f movies um, just slightly more accessible as stories but still kept the atmospheres and tones of so-called experimental film, whatever that is. I'm not experimenting. No. I know what yeah. I'm doing, yeah. I think. Yeah. I don't re realize I'm experimenting, but I'm willing to go with trial and error quite a bit, so maybe I'm experimenting a little bit, I don't know. But. Well, I was, I was re-watching Archangel, which is probably my favorite of yours. Oh, thank you. But yeah. um, I, I, all that struck me when I was watching it was that at no point did it seem like there was, it was an experiment. Like it seemed no. at all times like like you marvel at the fact that the, the form is so sophisticated and then that nails the Stroheim quality. And I was <laughs> wondering if maybe, because I also flipped over to the DVD commentary where you talk about audiences not responding well initially. Or high walkout rate, yeah. very and high, me, 85% or something like that. Only 83 well, I, minutes long. Too. I hypothesized that maybe it's the fact that like, I mean, I'm watching it in the same context where I will watch a Stroheim film or something yeah. and throw it on the TV and I'm, I'm wondering if maybe... you got to be in a special mood for... Well, not even that, but yeah. like the DVDs have maybe expanded the accessibility of, of, uh, of not only film history, but just like watching different types of film and having different types of expectations yeah. for different types of film as opposed to treating film as one experience. Again, maybe kind of going back to realism and if it deviates from that, it's, it's challenging. Whereas yeah. to me, like, I mean, at this point I've watched so much early cinema, uh, early yeah. sound cinema as well, that it just seems to be like a great Stroheim film that I'm throwing <laughs> on or something. That well, like you might not feel so trapped watching it on DVD. In a theater, I think a lot of people don't get a chance to talk each other through these things. You know, you, you kind of can watch a film with, you know, with a buddy system at home on the, yeah. on the couch. You can sort of decide together whether you really hate this thing or really like it. And, um, and you can kind of decide what point of the compass you're approaching it from and maybe it matches up with the directors and um, and it really kind of helps or you just even whether you're saying these things to each other in a in a living room with some friends or if you're just talking to yourself yeah, no, you're, you're um, at least kind of I think you can sense a feeling in the room that with your say your close friends or just yourself you can sort of um, lock in or get more determined or something but you, when you're in a room where clearly everyone is restless yeah uh, like the the big screenings for Archangel were without high walkout rates you know there's people just getting up yeah. people are getting up one minute in people are getting up and leaving with one minute to go and uh, you know it's obviously you know you you were getting your concerns confirmed yeah. <laughs> you know every yeah. couple minutes every time someone got up 
Um, so maybe it is friendlier. I, I had never even seen the movie until its premiere on the big screen. I shot and edited and everything on you know, really small uh, view. So it's sort of meant to be watched little anyway. Well, I was just thinking the fact that like it's, it, it, having access to, to film history in a, in a kind of pristine DVD player yeah. now, it, it, it makes it so that like the expectation shifts from this being, say, a primitive uh, approach, which I don't think is a bad thing. Like, yeah. It's like constraints and the, the production context. But you start looking at it less like, oh, it's deliberately primitive. Yeah. And more, it's nailing what it wants to be. Like, yeah. It's nailing this, these techniques perfectly the way that, say, Michael Bay aims to nail yeah. Transformers, right? It's just a different set of goals. Well, thanks. I'm glad you feel that way. I, um, when I was making the movie, which is a long time ago now, I shot it in 1989, came out in 1990, um, I do remember that I never felt more focused and uh, sure of myself. Um, I remember uh, I had kind of a Bible, which was a, just a big, um, a, I think a 10 volume set of uh, photos and drawings from the Great War yeah. that came out for little children uh, to read and, um, and sort of fantasize about the glories of war. And I, I, just, I just knew that if, uh, if I could find something in that book, it belonged in my movie because it had the same spirit that yeah. I wanted. And, um, and anyone in the art department, if they had a uh, question about what they could include in the production design, I would just say, if you can find it in the book, you can have it in there. And I was really focused and I knew the exact tone I wanted. And, uh, and ever since then, for the last 22 years, I've been aspiring to recreate that spirit uh, on set with my uh, subsequent movies. And I've never quite done it. Well, it was I the said, longest shoot, wasn't it? Or was yeah, it was yeah. because it was the first time I'd ever shot a movie on a shooting schedule. And I was really scared of, uh, because my first feature, the one made just before Tales from the Hospital, I made very organically and very slowly over an 18-month period. I was editing while shooting. And whenever I realized I needed a shot, I would go out and shoot it and get it and fit it in. It was a bit like not just making a jigsaw puzzle, but making, constructing a piece, uh, the, them piece by piece, but actually making each piece and then <laughs> one at a time, and then going in over to the puzzle and putting yeah. it in. And, um, and so I made my producer promise me that I could have 35 shooting days. Now, I'm, for Keyhole, I was already down to 15. Yeah. I've shot Cowards Bend the Knee in five days. Um, you know, the budgets keep getting smaller instead of bigger. Um, but that one, the budget was uh, small, but everyone got paid nicely. And there was a real kind of um, great communal atmosphere. We had a war medal making bee. <laughs> and a bunch of us got together and just, you know, spun 78 RPM records and yeah. made war medals out of, you know, cardboard and macaroni and gold spray paint. I don't know what it was. It sounds kind of twee, I realize. <laughs> but um, uh, it was, it was a, a really good little utopian time. And we all had a little bit of fear. I thought 35 days might not be enough. And oh, so yeah. I was always adrenalated and <laughs> lost a lot of weight while making the movie and felt really lean and um, ready to go. And uh, I've, like I say, I've been trying to find that happy zone of creativity ever since and the confidence, the swagger. Yeah. I've, I've had it maybe for a day or two here and there, but, but that one I had the swagger. It was, of course, all thrown back in my face when um, so many people 
I don't know what, you know, when you work in isolation, you, you allow your daydreams to get the better of you sometimes. Mm -hmm. And I would allow myself to, th to think that, believe me, my, my daydreams were like a pendulum and sometimes I would despair that no one would ever like the movie. But all too often I, I thought maybe a lot of people would like it, but it, yeah. it really surprised me when not that many people like it. Nothing has surprised me since. Um, but it seems, it does seem very accessible. Um, yeah, I watched it again for the first time in about 20 years, just two years ago, and I was really scared uh, that I'd have to own up to my own um, 90s arrogance yeah. and fatuousness, but I, I was a bit shocked at how accessible it seemed to me. Oh, I, no, mind yeah. you, I made it. Yeah. <laughs> I should be able to understand it, but it, it just didn't seem so impenetrable anymore. I think it's, it's kind of arid, and it really relies on, instead of music, it relies on ambient crackle, which was yeah. music to me then. Yeah. Um, and I'm, but there's so many uh, great ambient musicians out there now. My favorite one is Pole. Uh, oh, but yeah, uh, yeah. just, yeah, just, I could, as a matter of fact, when I don't like the score to a silent movie, I just put some Pole on, <laughs> and uh, it gets me through. It just makes everything good. Yeah. Um, well, it also made me think of the fact that it's, it's a film where, and I kind of want to go back to just a general style, but with this film specifically, I remember hearing on the commentary you say that you wanted to include a lot of ritual and Soviet iconography, but you didn't have it available to you in like the whim or the moment. Yeah. And now you could just pull up Google and yeah. do an image search, but you had to just kind of, kind of add up, cobble together memories but also like your own interests into something <laughs> yeah and i think that that's the point where the style starts to deviate from what i see is a lot of unfortunate and i know i just did it when i mentioned strohan but like spot the reference right kind of uh readings of the films as opposed to seeing how those are mingling with your own general interests and and themes but from a stylistic point of view do you think that that's kind of a, a limitation that gets put on them I've always been a happy plagiarist. I've never tried to make references. I don't want to reward people. I, I didn't like it in high school when I was forced to find symbols or explain what symbols meant, and I vowed I'd never do that yeah. to people. But yeah. I know it makes my movies make people feel like they should be naming a reference. And sometimes yeah. I've, when I have foolishly read reviews, I, especially comment threads, uh, you get people that are angry about, you know, or f with frustration that they haven't been able to spot something that Mr. Smarty Pants put there or something. Yeah. But I, I honestly, I'm not trying to make people, you know, check off references on a big no. list or anything like that. Sometimes I'm just stealing something, but I'm such an inept theft that it just a uh, thief that it just becomes something else. Um, or in a new context, it becomes way less effective and, and of course, unrecognizable because I'm using actors from Winnipeg and not immortals yeah. from Olympus. Um, um, but I, I, I don't know, I've always just believed in participating in the great compost heap of storytelling and filmmaking and you know, you're always just borrowing things from the air about, about you and repurposing them. So whether that means you're literally doing it with found footage films, which I don't make myself, but um, I'm a big fan of I'll watch almost any found footage film. Oh, yeah, yeah. And then um, same with sampled music and stuff. And uh, I don't know, it's, I'm always fascinated by 
um, just even bad mashups, like just to see how the alchemy of, of w how they work and maybe if only for a few seconds or something yeah. like that. And so that kind of stuff's going on. I don't know. And then I, um, I've even, I used to start by taking stories written by other people as starting points and then change them until they were not litigiously um, an issue. I remember starting with, say, with Archangel, starting with this Henry Green book called Back. Which and, is, has uh, an incredible introduction, by the way, oh. uh, in the Delphi Archive version. Yes, that's right, by incredible. George. Yeah, yeah. yeah George Scholes. I, I love the book, and, um, and by the time, you know, we wrote our version of it, there's no point in, you know, contacting I, the Henry Green estate. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but it, it was just something just that it, it changed into. I've since sort of reversed the process and now I take stories that I've lived myself and that mean a lot and tried to find um, precedents in literature. Yeah. Uh, for instance, um, I realized that this dream, recurring dream I've had about my father who died when I was 21 coming back to me over and over again in my dreams, but just coming back to pick up a razor or his glass eye or a comb and then leave again, mm -hmm. abandon the family. In my dream, he hasn't died. He's just abandoned us for a better family. And I, I realized when I was reading the Odyssey a couple of years ago that it's just that, that uh, Odysseus or Ulysses, it's been gone for 19 years, left a wife and a son behind. It is basically that Homer had been having the same dream that mm -hmm. I'd been having, that, that there was this father who went away and that he would just, he was trying to make his way back. Yeah. The ultimate deadbeat dad. And so it, it, the reverse started to be true. And I could find myself more in these stories, find myself emotionally in them. And then I could start attaching incidents that had really happened to me or someone in my family or, or to me in a dream um, to, um, to these really durable structures um, yeah. like the Odyssey, which is, you know, thousands of years old, or in the case of Cowards Bend the Knee to Electra, Euripides yeah. Electra. So I'd, I'd use these things that I'd actually lived and then when I was reading actually found out, oh my God, so Euripides went through that or was smart enough to imagine going through it. Uh, but, you know, this has been happening for thousands of years. I'm not the first complete coward or complete schnook or abandoned, you know, feed. Uh, you know, so um, um, I've, I've kind of flipped the plagiarism around now. I'm well, kind of retroactively accusing Homer of plagiarizing me. What was the timeline on that? Because like I know some of the, the films uh, preceding, say, Cowers Bend the Knee, Hampson was an influence. Yeah, I liked, uh, I liked Newt Hampson a lot and this book Pan. We mm -hmm. actually paid the Hampson estate $20,000 for Twilight of the yeah. Ice Nymphs. Um, so that was the last where we'd used kind of a, a pre-existing story. Um, as a starting point. Now I, I guess you could argue that I still kind of do, but uh, it's the reverse is true. I find a story in myself, a feeling, and um, I kind of go back. I didn't, I think that's how I started actually. I, my, my very first short film was just a dead father dream, like I just described. Mm -hmm. And same with my movie Tales from Gimli Hospital. It was just a jealous rivalry I'd had with a, a friend and I just, and I always wanted to set something in Gimli yeah. and just mythologize it, give it the old Hollywood treatment, see, see what happened to a Canadian subject 
given the old Hayes Code yeah. mythologizing. And um, so I sort of was starting with myself with those things. Um, for Archangel, I had this feeling of fuzziness I couldn't shake off, an eraser head like fuzziness okay. that, that um, when uh, David Lynch, who was clearly a father in an unplanned pregnancy situation, uh, made a racer head, he made, he duplicated perfectly that feeling that you're just incapable of waking up from your life yeah. <laughs> and just shaking yourself awake enough to make the right decision. And uh, when I saw that, I couldn't believe it. I was a young father myself. Lynch is exactly 10 years older than I am. And he really excited me uh, that you could take just a feeling just a feeling that no one even really spoke about ever and make a movie about it and uh, that was pretty exciting so um, if I owe anything to him and it's a huge thing it's that you can make a movie about a feeling yeah he's since veered off in his own directions and and I've and I've stewed in my own feelings probably unwisely <laughs> but uh, eh. but he's now, got his own coffee line yes and now you have you have the poet John Ashbery uh, yeah. yeah, and we're working together yeah, as yeah. well. Yeah, um, John is such a sweet and unpretentious guy, and what an amazing ear he has. Um, it's for me to talk about his ear and his voice. Is for me to talk, would be like talking about Rin Tin Tin's <laughs> ear or something like that. I don't, I, I can't even comprehend his ear. Yeah. You know, his ear for what language does and what makes a little grouping of words funny mm -hmm. um, I might be able to do something similar with a collage he's also a collage yeah. artist but um, what he does just delights me but it's pure magic to me and I don't get it and I don't understand how he does it but to be um, working with him on on this next project that I'm working on now over the next couple of years these seances that I'm yeah. holding um, is a real is a real treat he's just uh, he's assembled a lot of dialogue from uh, for me from um, a, a play he made that he collaged together out of New York Times obituaries and old um, fanzines Hollywood fanzines from the 30s and 40s and and then of course just from the little nooks and dusty corners of his memory his incredible memory and um, I don't know, just talking to him, you feel like you should be writing things down because he just phrases things beautifully, the exact order of the words, the way they're shuffled out. Once talk about not understanding whether you should, how to categorize something, you're not quite sure if it's kitsch yeah. or, or the smartest thing in the world or both. Yeah. It's probably both, yeah, definitely. but you're not <laughs> sure. And um, one of my favorite pieces by him, it's, it's because I, it, because I have a little more certainty about what it is, is uh, Girls on the Run, his long poem about oh, uh, yeah. Henry Darger's Vivian Girls, and what's sort of about that. And when you get lost, as you inevitably do, and as you want to do, you, find, you always find your way back in a little bit. And, and, uh, and that one is really uh, polymorphously delightful, and uh, it's, it's pretty cool. But, but I don't know, it's just, just going through his stuff, it's, it's beautiful. And I like uh, listening to him read. Um, he offers you no clues when he's reading either about what's up. 
the real honor was getting him to narrate my movie Brand Upon the Brain live on Mother's Day a few years back. And uh, to hear him, I thought, okay, this is going to offer a clue to me about how John Ashbery reads, because these are lines I wrote. And when I hear him read, maybe I can figure out backwards the spin he's putting on them. Yeah. You know, it'd be, it'd be like, you know, stealing signs from the catcher or something, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe I'd be able to understand the secret of his pitch order or something like that. And, um, but I couldn't. And he, to uh, and he told me just before going on that he had just finished watching um, on television, Plan, uh, was it Plan 9? It was a, one of the Ed Wood movies narrated yeah. by Criswell anyway. And he said, I'm going to channel Criswell <laughs> this afternoon. So he was... That's why I, he contaminated the, uh, the experiment uh, during which I was going to extract the Ashbury secret by, um, by sneezing a bunch of Criswell into the Petri dish. Yeah. And so um, I'm no closer now to understanding just what it is he does. But I like what, whatever it is he does. Yeah. And I, I, God, it would be amazing to be just as delightfully perplexing as he is. But that's... I can't even allow myself, I can't believe I said that. <laughs> well, it's a wild daydream of mine. Yeah, and to me it seems like poetry may be the way to kind of deal with the concept of the essay film, which seems to be coming up more and more with your recent work, yeah. like as a, a, a way of kind of trying to understand it. I know like My Winnipeg's probably generated the, the most amount of invented genres in <laughs> writing about it, like docu-fantasia. <laughs> yeah, that's and, right, yeah. so many. But to I me, tried to coin most of them myself just oh, to um, just to fend off he, the word mockumentary. Yes. <laughs> I just was willing to coin a million terms to bury the word mockumentary. When I when I first saw it, I mean, I felt comfortable with the concept of it being an essay film because although that's like a pretty wide uh, definition, yeah. and it would probably not qualify in the Errol Morris kind yeah. of version of it. To me, like my favorite filmmaker, Chris Marker, like it does not seem dissimilar at all. Where you kind wow. of in interjecting yeah. your own uh, being into what you've recorded. But what's interesting about my Winnipeg is that instead of it being footage you've accumulated, it's reenactments of like yeah. memories and, and shifting of them. Um, but it, it does seem like an interesting concept. Like I know you've said that you've, uh, you you kind of parried with the essay film as a, a definition of that, but what? What do you feel about I didn't dare use the term essay film. I just thought a lot of people would slam me for being um, conceited. Um, I, I already get the term wanker applied <laughs> to me quite often. Um, I thought, but, and then I knew there'd be some debate. Why? I'm not sure, but I just knew it, uh, whether it was a documentary or not, you know. Yeah. And uh, I thought we were well past those kind of debates. Oh, Aren't yeah. all documentaries just they're, they are documentaries. They're just documentaries about the filmmaker. Yes. <laughs> not the supposed subject. Yeah. So I know it's an essay film about me yeah. and about how I've decided to reenact or restage memories and what that means for a filmmaker. Or I don't even know if it's an essay so much as a, per, you know, a perambulation through and around without reaching any conclusions. What conclusions can one reach about such things anyway? Yeah, yeah. You know, you are for a while, you feel, uh, you're sad, and then you die. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of a little stroll through a few decades. And um, that's kind of what it is, I guess. 
but it happens to have a bunch of Winnipeg-specific stuff in it because I thought, yeah, the world needs some. Yeah. Well, how did, like, I know you've mentioned your difficulty incorporating Canadian kind of iconography or even sentiment into it. Like, initially you were hesitant to do that. And yeah. And you kind of embraced it a bit more. But I'm, I'm, I guess I'm thinking maybe it's because I just reread the diaries. Uh, you, you had Something I've never, <laughs> I've never read them. Well, Not the diary parts. Yeah, but uh, I, from my understanding, they were kind of censored by the editor to some, some degree. I asked him as a favor to remove... Um, a couple names. Sure, but, but one aspect that did make it was kind of, there is a, a kind of hesitancy to align yourself with too much of what's going on, or was going on in Canada. Um, to what extent does or does uh, not uh, Canadian kind of media tropes fit in? Uh, something I used to concern myself with more when I was more of a film watcher than a filmmaker uh, I just knew I didn't like most Canadian movies. Yeah. You know, I could feel us all struggling as a nation. We still are. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, with we break through and have very watchable movies now and then. But there's a kind of a way when things go bad, and I've done this myself. That's very Canadian, and you know, us Canadians are both uh, very proud and sheepish at the same time. And, yeah. And it produces a kind of a secondary embarrassment like no other uh, when a Canadian watches a, a Canadian film that is displeasing to him or her. Yeah. So I just didn't want to make those at first. But it's become less and less of a concern of mine. And I should watch my rear because I, I, you know, as I've been lucky enough to get films out in the world, I'm no longer really concerned about um, perhaps some Canadian trappings and... and, and Besides, I'm, I guess, in spite of myself, I'm kind of slightly patriotic. Yeah. Or, I'm, or, I, or I've just got so many roots that there are things that happen to be in my country that I love. And yeah. um, uh, not like chauvinistically patriotic or anything like that. No. But, um, but um, I, I, when I first started out, I, I made a point with my very first film of not setting it in Canada, you know, and... Uh, it, the idea of just making something so specifically of a place that it becomes universal never yeah. occurred to me. Yeah. You know, the idea of making, you know, Dubliners, you know, <laughs> something, everything set in, you know, Winnipeg or like uh, a neighborhood in Winnipeg or something, yeah. you know, Transcona in Winnipeg or something like that, that you could actually make stories that are so specifically about that neighborhood that they become universal. It didn't even occur to me. So I just went out of my way to try to change just to make it anywhere my yeah. first movie I think I called it the dominion of forgetfulness I wasn't thinking of the dominion of Canada but the only review that the movie got um, um, picked up on the word dominion I was thinking of it as dominion like mastery over yeah. you know in you know enslavement to or under beneath the dominion of an amnesia um, but someone picked up on the word dominion as Canadian and I thought ah that's maybe that's just as well <laughs> anyway and um and then my next film was very specifically canadian about gimli yeah. and 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 then i i don't know it, it's funny how my only real manifesto when i started out was to make not canadian movies and then i, I probably made films that were just as canadian as any other filmmaker so especially in temperament with our you know sort of donut hole protagonists yeah yeah or passive protagonists, or they're not even antagonists. 
this line. You need a you need a protagonist to have an antagonist. I think. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have either yeah, half yeah. the time. Just a bunch of guys lying around in bed. <laughs> but the uh, the style is is something that probably does benefit the the transmission of whatever Canadian elements are are included intentionally or otherwise. Yeah. Um, because it seems like there's like you going back to the post-war concept of you know international films existing like going to see a foreign film was that it behooved the government to award the funding to a filmmaker that had a distinctive style because yeah. then that style could be somehow reflective of the nation right and it seems like a lot of times if you took probably like a frame of 90 percent of canadian films it would just look like any other film there would be like no distinctive quality so i'm wondering if yeah in the 80s it felt that way yeah, yeah. i don't know it felt like just a kodak film stock that had been exposed accidentally or something. I don't know. So I could see people like wanting to, to read those things and to say something like My Winnipeg, which has such a distinctive style. Uh, how, was, like, how was the international reception in that regard? Um, I felt pretty full of mischief uh, with that movie because it was so full of willful mythologizing yeah, yeah. You know, that I even lost track of what I can't even remember how much of that is true, or, but I lost track <laughs> yeah, of which yeah. things were true and which weren't because I just lied so vehemently and I would, I vowed never to tell the same lie twice and I don't know, I just thought that I had to make up for a centuries, a couple centuries worth of reluctance to mythologize ourselves here and just try to do it all in one night yeah, if possible yeah. <laughs> during a screening of a movie and the Q&A after, you know, and just to boil things down to tell and to retell and tell again a story, to be a one-man word-of-mouth uh, narrative composter. And, um, and so I, f I felt pretty mischievous. I remember even in, in Reykjavik, um, Bjork was in the audience and she asked a question afterwards. Oh, wow. It's so beautiful. And she asked um, if a certain part of the movie was true. And uh, I was thinking, oh, I, I can't lie to Bjork. I gotta, <laughs> I got it. And then I went, but before I opened my mouth, I went, no, I've got to lie more to Bjork. <laughs> <laughs> you know, she deserves yeah, more, yeah. you know, and uh, I've got to pay her the compliment of really piling it on. So I reached back and I found some stuff and really piled it on. And it, the strange thing about lying in connection with um, your own work, I can't believe I just called my movie my work, but anyway, um, because the lies come from me, somehow, and they're about stuff that came from me, mm -hmm. they really do kind of add up after a while. Like yeah. I, when I start, you know, sort of debriefing myself and going, what, what the hell did I just tell Bjork? And then I realize that it's more, um, it may not be literally true, but it's psychologically or poetically true somehow, that it came from me for some, came from the same place that the first lie came yeah. from, and that I was just slathering more of the same on top of it. And, and that that lie on the film actually is, is true. And the whole film and my stand on the film is that it's all plausibly true or, or sociologically true or um, dreamily true. Or, I like the Werner Herzog idea of the ecstatic truth. Yes. What a great term uh, just to describe lying. Yeah, you know, yeah. but, but it is an ecstatic truth. It means more. Um, Oscar Wilde said something like, um, without exaggeration, there's no truth or something <laughs> like that. But, um, 
I look at it, going back to melodrama again, uh, one of the definitions of melodrama is supplied by the theater writer Eric Bentley, who talked about melodrama as not being the truth exaggerated. You know, we all think of melodramas as being exaggerated. Yeah. The performances are exaggerated. Hysteric. Yeah, it's, it's the truth uninhibited. And there's a big difference. Because if, um, if, if a police officer comes to you and asks you what happened at the bank robbery, yeah. and you start exaggerating what happened, you're lying. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but if, um, if the police officer talks to you and uninhibits the truth from you, it's just the truth. Yeah. And so good melodrama is the truth uninhibited. And so it can play just as big as an exaggerated or an hysterical, uh, histrionic, wild, crazy thing. But it's actually just the truth. You want to kill your brother. You want to strangle your mom. You want to steal that money. You want to rape that person. Uh, or whatever horrible crimes that at some level you feel like doing, but civilization prevents you from doing. In a melodrama, you get to do them. In your dreams, you get to do them. If you're unhinged, you get to do them and pay the consequences. But um, it's, it's a psychological truth. It's an ecstatic truth that you, want, that you lust after someone and want to grab yeah. him or her. That you want to steal that money because you covet it and things like that. So those are ecstatic truths that are um, maybe, maybe I've got ecstatic truth wrong, but to me, uh, those are just uninhibited truths. I'll, I'll use my terminology yeah, and, yeah. and leave Herzog's alone. <laughs> but I, I think they both amount to the same thing. They're, um, they sometimes require the director to um, manipulate <laughs> the, the truth to expose it. Yeah. Um, uh, rather than uh, exaggerating it's uh, out of bounds. That's not legitimate. Um, you know, I suppose when you get into the metaphor of like putting a magnifying glass on the truth to see it better, maybe, but uh, it can't, I don't know, can't distort it in relation to other things or it's no longer true. Sure. What, what about the, the power plant uh, installation for Cowards Bend the Knee and the people? Um, but that was a film that was ostensibly a kind of uh, you, you, you're, you are the main character, right? Yeah. You have this people, like kind of this like unintended truth, uh, like observation of truth, right? Because yeah. Because it does not know that it's being watched, so it does not hide anything. Right. Well, as a kid, I spent a lot of time at peepholes, spying yeah. on people. It's fun. <laughs> it's great. I recommend it to kids. Uh, it's healthy. It's normal. And... Um, it was a great consolation to me when I read, I used to feel guilty about it, but I read in Bunuel's My Last Sigh, his autobiography, that he used to do a lot of it too, and that uh, at beach houses and that staring at women changing and that women started shoving hat pins through the keyholes yeah. and things like that. Um, and he started, he countered that by putting bottle glass in so that the pins, so he could still watch even though the pins are bending <laughs> up again. Um, I, it was my first attempt at making an installation and I couldn't think of what to do and I didn't want to be accused of being, um, um, performance art wanker or anything yeah. like that. So I thought I better just expose myself as much as possible in my most cowardly, <laughs> my most humiliating yeah. um, uh, chapters. And, and that if they're viewed through peepholes, it would be kind of be like returning the favor to uh, the, the zeitgeist, this karmic book balancing, yeah. that other, allowing other people to stare at, through peepholes at me as I drop my pants and, and do some things I should not have done. Yeah. Um, it felt good in, in the accounting department. Um, what didn't feel good was uh, because of a quirk in the air conditioning at the power plant, 
um, a really strong eyeball dehydrating breeze was blasting oh, out wow. of each of the peepholes and even, and even blowing gyp rock particles <laughs> into viewers' eyes. And so even my closest friends and most devoted uh, journalistic followers couldn't, could only get a few minutes into the thing before uh, pulling their agonized heads away from the wall with a kind of red snooker ball like uh, <laughs> swollen orbs where I, their eyes used to be. There's even on Bruce Jenkins, this friend of mine from the Walker Art Center had like a big hemorrhage up the side of his temple and things like that from trying to watch yeah, the movie. Yeah, so even though I actually made a little bit more money with it as an installation, I think you get paid $10,000 every time it was installed in a museum, the art world moves so slowly there'd be you know, a show once a year somewhere or something. I just wanted it to be seen. I was actually pretty proud of it as a movie. Yeah. I didn't really make an installation. I made a movie that happened to be shown through people. So I, I just yanked it out of the installation world and made it a single channel thing where it, I, I think I sold it to the Sundance Channel or something. I, I broke even on it. Yeah. I paid for that out of my own pocket. What a mistake. Don't ever do that. Well, all of your films seem to have the conceptual rigor that would go into like something like an installation typically. Um, and I'm getting a little better at it, <laughs> a bit of installations, yeah. But I also, uh, I saw you speak maybe two years ago uh, at the University of Toronto, and I noticed in, in your selection of short films that you included two things that could probably be called, you know, more art pieces than, than films, which are, uh, what was it, um, The Way Things Are, I believe? Was that hmm. the, uh, it's like the domino effect of, of the, the apparatus Oh, right, yeah. And um, the other, I cannot remember the name, but it's the most disturbing thing. I, I always forget. You, you meant the Fishley and Vice yes, thing? Yes, yeah, yes. yeah. I, I've always forgotten the title of that so thing. So do I. Yeah. And I've, I'm forgetting the yeah, title. Yeah, it's a wonderful Rube Goldberg device yeah. involving trash bags and chemicals and spilt buckets and But the ice. one that, that reverberated with maybe Cowards Bend the Knee is, I don't know the name of it, but it was, um, I guess, this uh, pornography production company would shoot your script yeah. if you sent it, and it was a, a, an artist who sent a kind of post-apocalyptic narrative. Yeah. I've never been more uncomfortable in my entire <laughs> life watching anything than that. And final, uh, final flesh, final, yeah. final <laughs> fantasy, final flesh. Yeah, whatever. Yeah, it's there's these porn companies that'll shoot your scripts, supposedly of your fantasies, but this this dude sent in um, scripts just a movie script yeah. that he'd written, but he got porn actors to act them out. So they were always defaulting to sort of pornographic gestures yeah. when they weren't saying their lines. And um, it was well, really They odd. seemed uncomfortable, like super uncomfortable. They were uncomfortable. I, 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 just, I just can't believe, what a, what a great idea and how impossible to watch is the thing anyway. You know, but it's, it's, it's really wonderful. I've been, I've been think, I, I seriously told my producer, Jody Shapiro on, on Keyhole that I wanted to, shoot a version of Keyhole myself, but also just send a script off to these porn companies <laughs> and see how they did. Yeah. And then maybe just, I don't know, cut their footage into ours or something. I don't know. So are you starting to weigh ideas more as possible avenues other than, than film now? Is that it? Yeah, I almost felt like I've, with Keyhole, that's 10 feature-ish length projects I'm, I've made. And I, uh, my next project is an internet project Same that, yeah, that is really complicated and really foolishly, impossibly, overly ambitious. A hundred. Uh, yeah, a hundred films that I'll shoot in a hundred days in a hundred different cities or something, I don't know, whatever it is. And then, and then that's just phase one. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't know. Um, they're all uh, adaptations 
um, written by me and my partner Evan Johnson and some other people and with John Ashbury contributing yeah. dialogue and um, uh, and I, you know it's it's actually I still even though it's internet and it's a little bit interactive I still want it to be a viewing experience yeah. uh, because I'm a movie maker and a movie watcher and I don't play video games but I, I was just thinking you know, I, even the greatest distributors in the world, and I've had some really loyal distributors, believe me, because none of them have, I haven't made any money for anybody, um, can only reach so many people. And I just thought, well, maybe, I've, I've, maybe even with all our hard work, I've only reached the narrowest, the narrowest sliver of my potential demographic. And maybe just with the internet, if I could just do my thing there, yeah. maybe I can actually find most of the people that might be inclined to like me. Mm -hmm. it's, a it's a slender percentage, but it's, um, but when you use the whole world as, as, a, as a pool, you know, maybe I'll feel better. Yeah. And, uh, and then there are things I've just become obsessed with. All the movies are adaptations of lost films, yeah. aborted films or unrealized films uh, from canonical and not so canonical directors and uh, from every country and continent that we could find them in. And it's really intriguing. And then um, just once per day, I'll just hold a seance, usually in a public place, Centre Pompidou, yeah, hopefully Pompidou. MoMA, hopefully in the Sao Paulo Biennale, um, the Winnipeg Art Gallery. MoCA? <laughs> um, uh, I'd, I'd, we're starting with four, but yeah. if I'd, in phase two, I'd, I'd love to take it to some other public places. And each day we make contact with the unhappy spirit of a lost film that's yeah. no longer capable of projecting itself. And, uh, and then the participants in the seance will go into a trance and act out the lost plot yeah. while I film it. So it's simply a matter of documenting a narrative seance. Um, I played around with that a little bit in my Winnipeg where I actually had a danced yeah. seance. Yeah. And I like the idea of seances. I don't believe in that crap at all sitting here <laughs> with you yeah. talking but when I'm holding a camera in my hand or when I'm writing Uninhibited. yeah I, I that's I, I start believing in in that stuff I it's like I'm sure the great ghost story writers don't believe in ghosts yeah. but uh, until they uh, are writing and yeah. then they believe in them uh, for all it's worth um, I don't know I I don't believe in ghosts at all but um, I don't know when I'm holding a movie camera uh, the world's suddenly full of ghosts and I don't mean that just because it's a professional convenience. It just feels, when I'm trying to figure out why I feel a certain way, I realize I'm haunted yeah. uh, with something. And um, I, then I just default to the quick shorthand definition. Well, ghosts haunt. <laughs> so there must be ghosts. What are my ghosts? Try to figure them out. And then that's, that's how I start. And that helps. That's sort of... What helps me through fairy tales and books and movies, I, I, um, I try to think of them all as little hauntings. Or um, I like the fact that the, the French term, when you go to Paris to watch a movie, you look up the times of all the seances. <laughs> and uh, it's the term that's used for just watching a movie, little seance. So in uh, France, you have to call them seance de spiritisme. Uh, for for a get together, hold hands, <laughs> and you know, invoke spirits and things like that. Um, that that bridges nicely to keyhole. Um, with keyhole, uh, one thing that interests me is that you described your interest in genre 
as kind of being both almost a concession for accessibility, but also like something you said you were inept at. <laughs> but yeah. I, I think that everything that you've done has a kind of strong genre kind of uh, uh, relationship, if not directly yeah. within. And I'm wondering uh, how playing two off of one another, in this case, kind of like the ghost story yeah. and the gangster story, right? how, like, what compulsion you may have felt to the genre and to what... I really wanted to make a genre. I just thought it would help me. Yeah. You know, like, I, like we started to talk about when someone once told me back in the 90s, your films are impossible to categorize. I went, I know. <laughs> and I was so proud. And yeah. they went, no, you don't understand. You know, like, no one knows how to explain these things to the public. No one knows how to embolden people to buy a ticket yeah. or anything like that. You should make a genre film, make science fiction. The trouble is I got bad advice. I, I, I have no feeling for science fiction at all. So everyone assumed I would. Yeah. But maybe a horror movie. Uh, but I don't even know, past Val Luton and a couple of other films, I, I don't even like most horror movies no. even. Uh, but, um, but I like a, a ghost story I understand and I understand gangster movies. And I've, maybe I dreamt that there was some, like either Abbott and Costello or Bowery Boys movies that didn't mix the two yeah, together, yeah. you know, some sort of wisecracking thugs with <laughs> ghosts or something. They seem like they belong together, yeah, gangsters yeah. in a haunted house. I don't know. It just seems like just doing one genre isn't quite right. You know, like that's why you got to do like cowboys and aliens yeah, or yeah. something like that. You know, those, it's kind of fun to see what happens when you take all the conventions. And uh, I liked um, The Quick and the Dead, Sam Raimi's um, Western mashed up with a curling bond spiel. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Whatever it is, <laughs> this kind of round robin thing. Mm -hmm. It's really kind of a secret homage to curling. I love that. <laughs> I love that mashup, this, the invisible mashup. Um, I was comfortable with it, but for some reason, the, the two seemed to fit so well together, Ghosts and Gangsters, that it didn't even strike me as anything to, to struggle, yeah. struggle with. I probably did forget to do the gangster in uh, after opening the movie with some guy. I realized I don't want to have to keep track of who's got guns and who yeah. doesn't. And <laughs> so I just had them all throw their guns away uh, within a few minutes, and that was that. And then it was just a ghost story. And then the ghosts don't even really do any haunting, or just my friend Louis Nagin just walked around naked for 15 days and only <laughs> shot him. And then um, it's. The fact is, I made the movie because I'm haunted in my dreams by my childhood home. Yeah. And I just wanted to make a movie about a house, that's all. It was really exciting for me because when I first read the concept, the first thing I thought about was uh, Bachelard's book. Uh, yeah, which I read shortly before making it. And boy, would I have loved to have... I should have made it one more pass at the script because I, I would have definitely had a couple of tiny little Bachelardian moments or attempts at them, where I would just go into a cozy nook somewhere for a while and just get comfortable in it with the camera and a character and, and just, try to, just try to enjoy with one person a space and beneath a stairway or something. But by the time I shot the thing, I realized I'd bit, already bitten off like a big chunk of autobiography, the Odyssey, yeah. um, some other stuff. Um, and that there was already too much, so I couldn't afford those little meditative moments. Didn't help that I um, was too busy shooting a bunch of these installations for the Bell Lightbox at the same yeah. time, and I should have really beating myself up for doing two projects at the same time. I thought, 
at the time it inspired me because I thought this is mad. Yeah. Like who would do that? <laughs> you know, who would do two things at once? You know, but I I did, and and it seemed it really fired me up and got me out of bed. But it was, it did. It did hurt because I have big regrets about the script because I feel like the movie's so close to being exactly what I wanted it to be, but there's about two or three scenes yeah. that I would love to have done differently. I would like to take one out where, you know, where Jason Patrick discovers his daughter in bed with his adopted son. I would like to take that one out and I'd like to instead put a little scene where, um, the police wave a white flag, and the gangsters wave a white flag, and the cops come to the door, yeah. and they have um, a pair of clean underwear folded up um, in one hand, and they ask permission to deliver it to uh, the mother of Manners, the boy who may have committed suicide, and and the boy, uh, the boy's underwear is taken up. You're not quite sure whose boy it is, and the police officers say. I just had to, s normally we don't do this, but when we took this underwear off your son, it, we noticed it was just so clean and so beautiful that we just had to fold this up and give it back to you. We were yeah. really proud of him. And then just leave again, and then they could, the cops and gangsters could start <laughs> shooting at each other again. I don't know, just little, little things that would remind viewers that the mother actually has lost a son. Yeah. Um, little, or little things that, actually acknowledge the fact there's an odyssey, that there's a journey through the house, a sense that there's progress, maybe a big map of the house, one room at a time, checked off like or something. Or, yeah, exactly. Something very simple, just something, I don't know, just a few little things like that. Um, and then uh, lots of little details that my mother often tells me. When she, my mother has no short-term memory anymore. She's 95. So I, when I talk to her, I engage her in um, long-ago events. Yeah. And, but her, uh, one thing that's gone along with her short-term memory is her um, ability to censor herself. And so she brings up really odd, raw little landmines that uh, she stepped on a long time ago. And they're coming up now for the yeah. first time. And so now's the time to just strip mine my mom's brain, what's left of my mom's brain for autobiographical mother loads of of really rich and strange personal mythology I didn't realize existed, so mm -hmm. I should be doing that now. Yeah. She'll be waking up from her nap shortly. I'll, I'll go get her. It, it's made me consider the spatial quality of a lot of your films. I mean, Winnipeg, my Winnipeg has got like a city that it's kind of defining mythologically, the way that this one has a house. But then also Archangel is a, a, a city as well. And, and yeah. it's coming out of like, the great sets of like saddest music, like it, it seems like you really utilize the spatial component of cinema that other other media do not have to yeah. kind of document. I've never known how good I am at that, but I knew that, for instance, I remember when I started reading as a young adult, Nabokov was one of my favorites, and he always talked about how he made his students like draw a diagram of Gregor Samsa's bedroom or yeah, something yeah. like that. He wanted to know exactly, or of Gregor Samsa's uh, insect body. He wanted to <laughs> people to know exactly what it was and he would really get literal-minded, strangely, for a guy whose writing gets airborne. He would get really literal-minded. He'd make people draw out like a, town, like a neighborhood in a Jane Austen novel and like down to the last foot. And um, 
I knew I could never do that because for one thing, I don't care. I don't watch a movie that way. Yeah. I don't care how far point A and B are from each other. And, and I know the filmmakers usually don't care because quite often they might even be established as one distance, but then in editing, a bunch of scenes get eliminated and things get stuck closer together than they really are or the impression of space is changed by the score even. Um, so I, I didn't even care about mapping out Archangel or mapping out this house. I, it would have been nice to map out the house in key, Keyhole, but I do know that um, I have a kind of a treasure map in my head yeah. uh, that um, I always have to go through whenever I want to get to a treasure, which is namely a very favorite memory, a memory that pays off big time, yeah. whether it's, you know, a, a, a physical memory or a, an emotional one or, or whatever. There's so many different kinds of memories. But if I want to get to that feeling again, whether it's one of being loved or uh, loving yeah. or something in between, um, there's a number of points you have to sort of go through. You're not allowed to just go straight to that feeling yeah. because it doesn't feel as good. You've got to build up to it slowly. It's kind of onanistic. You kind of got to work up to it or it just won't be any good revisiting that memory. And so there's certain stations of the, of the memory that you have to go through and that's my little treasure map. And, and so I've had things like that in, in Archangel and... Um, in Keyhole and probably in everything else too. I think in Brand Upon the Brain I did, as a matter of fact. Yeah. Just little, little things like you had to, to recreate a girl you were in lust with. You had to feel the reeds with your left hand a certain way. You had to you know, throw a stick at a seagull with your left hand. And you had to, I don't know, there's just a certain combination of things. I developed a lot of superstitions when I was a, uh, I was a real loner as a kid and I developed a lot of superstitions um, like that, the combination of things. It was almost like trying to crack a safe or something <laughs> like that. But I did it with gestures and things and rituals and that invariably, eventually, paid off with a great feeling. Uh, but, um, so, my sense of space has nothing to do with actual, like, meters or square feet sure, or anything. Yeah. It's just ob objects. But, um, but thanks for feeling a sense of space in there anywhere, somewhere. Um, with with keyhole, with keyhole, you um, you're working with the digital SLR. Yes. Um, what was that experience like with the the concept of the style that you kind of collected at that point? It's really liberating to go digital. Yeah. I'd been meaning to do it for a while. I shot a lot of my Winnipeg digital, but it seemed like the script was. Yes, my Winnipeg had a script. Uh, was still seemed filmic, so I kind of chickened out at the end and I projected oh, okay, yeah. most of it on my fridge and reshot yeah. it with film. Uh, and then just to see film grain in it. But then I, I thought, this is, that's dumb. Um, and even though I felt Keyhole was a film script, not a video script, um, when we were having trouble making the budget work and I found out we could save $70,000 by shooting digitally, I just I'd always been intending to make my next project digital anyway. Yeah. I just thought, well, let's just take the plunge now and I'll just be terrified for a while and I'm sure we'll work it out. It'll be whatever. You know, I just, I, I wanted to be pushed yeah. into the pool. And so I allowed myself and uh, uh, it was just a matter of just shooting a test subject 
and transferring it to film and making sure it looked okay to me so I could have some swagger yeah. when I was wielding the camera yeah, so yeah. that I would know what it would look like. And uh, it felt good. Um, the few times I've done tests in my life, they've really paid off. I should do them more often. It's yeah, like what yeah. a growing up filmmaker does. <laughs> should do them more often. Was it an experience that in any way mirrored the, the shift to 35 for ACX? It was way better than switching to 35. The 35 millimeter camera was so huge. Yeah. I wasn't, it, I really like portability. I like finding the frame myself lots of times, or at least having the right to. I have a DOP I work with all the time now, Ben Kasalki, yeah. and when I'm not feeling it, I say, you shoot it, Ben. <laughs> and uh, when I'm feeling it, I sort of grab the camera away from him, or quite often we just have both going at once and twice the footage yeah. for us in editing. Um, it's wonderful, but it looks like this. And the actor Jason Patrick, who's the lead role in yeah. Keyhole, was just kept saying, when are the real cameras coming out? You know, because they just look like you're posing for a, a snapshot oh, in your Christmas sweater, you know. <laughs> and so he wasn't so confident about that at first. But uh, I assured him that it, was, that it looked okay. And, you know, he certainly has no problem with the way the movie looks. No. Uh, but uh, I, I feel the way, you know, some people have said, geez, it's video, but it, I don't know, it's finished on film and yeah. it's 24 frames per second and there's images there and I don't know, whatever. Well, you think after White Ribbon, like, everything would be dispelled because, like, that's... Yeah, is that cool. shot on video, White Ribbon? Yeah. It's, I love the look of that red, movie. I yeah, think, yeah. It's, it's, there's, the debate has been very uninteresting to me for very, a very long time. Very yeah. I've just been scared. I'm a creature of habit. I knew how to, I, for my, cam, my film cameras, I didn't need a light meter. You know, I could see with my eye and, yeah. you know, I see in black and white if I need to, you know, it's true. And uh, you just turn off the color in your brain and see in black and white. So uh, I was very entrenched in a comfort zone with it, but beginning to feel like I was really repeating myself and it's enough already. Yeah. I'm, my next project's in full color. I can hardly wait to think about color again. I've made a few projects yeah. in color and I've enjoyed them and there's so much more potential to get up to some color mischief now than ever before. The color in Careful is incredible. Oh, thanks. That was all analog. You know, yeah. that had to be done with just paint and yeah. makeup yeah. And, and, um, and a slight processing trick where you um, overexposed everything by three yeah, stops yeah. and then repressed. The, the colors back down again in what we called represso vision, but that all had to be done kind of analog, and and so it was kind of crazy, crazily ambitious, painting every square millimeter of what yeah. you see in sometimes very wide shots in the movie. Um, but I, I kind of liked the madness of that. It always seemed felt like in those days, it was my third movie that I was just going to keep making bigger and crazier movies and yeah. that soon I'd be painting maybe the whole world <laughs> or something like that and, and shooting it. Yeah, exactly. But uh, I did a, took a hairpin corner somewhere in there and yeah. I've ended up shooting most of my stuff in my kitchen now. And <laughs> I don't know. Lost a few decimal places on the budget somewhere <laughs> along the line too. i to look for those. Well, it, it's so exciting. Keyhole is a, is a good omen. For the it, seances. It feels good, yeah. And the seances, I like being, I've been a faux pioneer for so long. And even I don't even understand what pioneering role I've been pretending to be playing all these years, if any at all. Yeah. And most people don't. But now I'm a real pioneer. I'll be trying to make art on the internet. Noah Cowan told me it was impossible. Yeah. Uh, I, 
don't think he's right. No, um, and uh, it, these are the kind of things that were said about film a hundred years ago. So uh, I like the idea of being a real pioneer, an internet pioneer, but kind of being, kind of being the old um, kind of throwback pioneer. I don't know, like Lord Selkirk coming to Manitoba <laughs> at the age of, you know, sixty, and yeah. and. Um, and just bringing, sort of bringing syphilis to the new country <laughs> or something like that. Yeah, that's sort of me. That's the kind of pioneer I want to be. You'll be giving the internet a venereal disease. <laughs> yeah, whatever. A digital, <laughs> digital venereal disease. All right. Well, thank you so much. Oh, a million thanks.